Our scripture lesson this morning is the first chapter of the Bible, the very beginning. Genesis or Genesis is a Greek word which means beginning. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness God called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Then God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from those that were above, and it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together God called ocean. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Then our lesson from the Hebrew Psalter this morning is Psalm 90. Wonderful psalm for January. January, which is named for the Roman god Janus, the two-faced god. One looking back and one looking forward. Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. We will sing it together from the hymnal number 210. Pray with me, please. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you're my age, you might have grown up listening to the music of this band. It came to prominence in my senior year of high school, 1975. One of its albums briefly topped the pop charts in the United States. It is actually a band that was born in Chicago. I didn't know that, but it started here and then migrated to L.A., and it might be the greatest band name of them all, right? Way better than the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. What's up with the Beatles? Other great band names. Discuss discuss amongst yourselves. The Supremes, Led Zeppelin, Grateful Dead, the Beach Boys. But Earth, Wind, and Fire, I thought to myself, that might make a provocative sermon series. It might expand our imagination and exaggerate our store of God images beyond the useful but routine images of parent or royal or potentate or creator or provider and the like. The band name Earth, Wind, and Fire, after all, is a curtsy to ancient Greek philosophy, which taught that the basic building blocks of the universe were the four elemental things, phenomena of earth, wind, fire, and water. Those were the irreducible, indivisible constituent elements of everything we see and everything we touch. They were, for the ancient Greeks, earth, fire, wind, and water, the ancient equivalent of our periodic table, the chemical elements in our periodic table, the building blocks of reality. Remember your sixth grade science teacher, right? Now, when we pick up a rock, we say this rock is composed of 
iron and magnesium and carbon and silicon, maybe. Those are the building blocks of this matter, this very dense rock. Those are the building blocks. But the ancient Greeks would say this rock is comprised of the building blocks of earth and water and air. Those are the basic elements. Now, from the beginning, these building blocks were so important philosophically and practically that the Greeks began to personify them. They got personalities. They became spirits or divinities or demigods. And we still do this today, don't we? We might say that yesterday Lake Michigan was very angry. We give it, it an emotion. In New South Wales, a family which lost its home to the fire is living in a horse trailer on their property to keep watch over their dogs and horses and cattle. And one woman said that the fire is like a sentient being that is coming to get us. That's the way she thought about this evil. The fires are villains that stick around long enough so that they reveal their personalities. Firefighters swear at the fires because of their cunning unpredictability. They're villains. They are malevolent, which means literally to will someone else evil. Now, Earth, as you know, is the third rock from the sun. It is orbiting a star as I speak. You and I are hurtling through empty space at about 66,000 miles an hour. It is the only Goldilocks planet that we know anything about, close enough to its star so that cells can suck up its radiant energy and create life and nourish itself, but also far enough away so that most of the Earth, most of the time, doesn't look like New South Wales just now. Earth is the only planet not named for a Greek or a Roman god. The English word Earth simply comes from an Anglo-Saxon word which meant ground. Earth, ground, somewhere to stand. Earth is the densest planet, all rock and metal. A place to stand. Now in that creation story I read just a moment ago, did you know how much of God's creative work is a matter of gathering stuff up and put it into the right place? Right? It's, a measure, it's a matter of tidying up. God is dividing and separating stuff into the right places. Because when God gets to it, the universe is just, according to Genesis, a shapeless void. Tohu wabahu in Hebrew. I love that pictorial phrase. Tohu wabahu. Just primordial muck. Just primeval goo. There's no light and no dark. No sky, no earth, no water or dry ground, just a giant swamp. I picture in my mind what the Everglades must have looked before the mangroves and alligators got there. No place to stand. And then God gets busy gathering the light into one place and the dark into the other place. The light God calls day and the dark God calls night. And then God builds a dome over the earth, separating the waters above from the waters beneath. I picture the Vikings dome. I picture Ford Field, a dome to separate the waters above and the waters below. And then God gets to work on the waters below, on the earth. God takes the waters and puts them in one place, great basins called ocean. 
And then God takes all the dry ground and puts it in another place, and that God calls terra firma. In the Genesis creation story, God is sort of like a celestial Marie Kondo, the life-changing magic of tidying up. God separates, gathers into one place. So we need a place to stand. That's what the creation story is all about. We need a place to stand, literally and figuratively. We need soil to take root in, to be anchored, held fast, literally and figuratively. We can't be floating around aimlessly through empty space like Sandra Bullock in that film Gravity. So do you have a place to stand? I don't mean literally because I can see you out there pinned to your pew by the magic of gravity, but I mean figuratively. Do you have a place to stand? Are you anchored? Are you rooted? Did you ever think of ground as an image of God? It's actually quite a prominent symbol for God in the 20th and 21st centuries. The German-American 20th century Protestant theologian Paul Tillich referred to God as the ground of being, a very fecund image in my mind. In his typical blunt and provocative way, Dr. Tillich, University of Chicago, by the way, Dr. Tillich would say, God does not exist. God does not exist, at least not in the same way other beings exist, not like an elephant exists or Mount Rainier exists or Abraham Lincoln. God is not another being among beings like you and I. Even the supreme being, God is not even the supreme being. God is the precondition of all that exists. God is the ground of existence. God is our origin and our destiny. The ground of being, where we come from, where we stand, where we take root and grow. So are you grounded in God? Well, you are grounded in God. We all come from God. Even the most implacable atheist is grounded in God. But I mean, are you grounded in, in the Ten Commandments, in the life of the Nazarene, in the unstinting grace of the deity, in that love the New Testament says God simply is without remainder? Are you grounded there? So, who's going to win the NCAA championship tomorrow night? I know. I'll give you an ironclad money-back guarantee. The Tigers are going to win. I got fascinated this week with LSU coach Ed Orgeron. He's from there, a homegrown boy. He's from down the bayou. He's from south of New Orleans. I did not even know there was a south of New Orleans, but there is, and Coach O is from there. And of course, America got fascinated with Coach O's distinctive voice, that anti-James Earl Jones, anti-Garrison Keeler, graveled, grinding gears voice, right? Nobody is ever going to ask Coach O to read audiobooks or to do voiceover commercials. But also the accent, that gumbo, that gumbo of French and Cajun and Deep South, a former defensive end from LSU who still lives in the area, said 
Finally, LSU has got a coach without an accent. And the Post, the Washington Post, had the most wonderful article uh, last week, or right around Christmas, I guess, about Coach O's origins. The article said that in his voice, in his accent, you can hear gators sloshing and mosquitoes buzzing and muskrats swimming and Spanish moss hanging and shrimp trawlers winching. He is, says this article, the embodiment of down the bayou. And that's not a place. That's not a direction. That's not a vector point. It's who you are. It's what something is. It's your essential character. It's a framework for your identity. It's a groundedness. And I love to think about a guy who was so grounded in where he came from. By the way, he was an interim coach at USC, right? Six and two as an interim coach. Some people speculate he didn't get the job at USC because he was not sophisticated enough. His accent threw people off. So I love to think about a guy who's grounded in the place he came from, so grounded that he can then become the ground where other young men can flourish. And so are you anchored to a place? Are you anchored to God? Are you anchored to a place? Are you anchored to this community? You've grown and flourished here. Have you become ground for other young people to flourish? Are you grounded in your family? Are you grounded in your primary relationship? Have your roots grown together underneath the soil, as that old reading puts it? Well, Dudley's gone, and my wife and I married off both our kids this year, and the house is kind of empty and silent. So we took care of that last Saturday by driving to Door County to pick up a puppy. He was eight weeks old when we met him. He is a litter, from a litter of ten puppies, seven boys and three girls. And when we wrenched him away from that family, it was kind of sad, to be honest with you, I sort of briefly questioned the whole institution of pet ownership because it seemed so unkind. He spent every day of his life entangled in a big pile of golden fur like this. And we took him away from all that. Poof, all of this is gone, right? And so the first night at my house didn't go so well. We put him in this spacious, comfortable crate down in the family room. And then we went up to our bedroom on the second floor. And for two hours, until I got up with him and slept with him on the couch, for two straight hours, he let loose with the most unearthly screeches straight from the fifth circle of Dante's Inferno. <laughs> all different kinds of vocalizations, all levels of pitch from shrill to, to piercing, all calculated to communicate to us his existential despair, his complete and utter abandonment. He was alone in the universe. He was unmoored. I told some not, someone that it was kind of interesting to witness 60,000 years of evolution at work. That is to say, down the eons, only the screechiest puppies survived. 
They got the attention because mama dogs and human observers couldn't stand it for one more minute. And so only the screechiest puppies survived. So now he sleeps in his crate, flush up against my side of the bed. <laughs> that works a little better. His name is Doug. Kathy will call him Douglas, and I'm going to call him Doogie. So maybe you remember the canine hero from the 2009 Pixar film Up about Carl, an aging gentleman who is just disconsolate over the loss of his beloved, beloved wife. He's just broken. He's just wrecked. And he pushes all creatures out of his life. But Russell the Boy Scout and Doug the Golden Retriever try to befriend Carl and are finally successful. And Ken Harris reminded me about why Doug the Golden Retriever, squirrel, he's always saying, remember that? Squirrel. Why Doug the Golden Retriever is so important to the film and also theologically apt. Because Doug can talk. And Doug says to the broken, bereft Carl, I just met you and I love you. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you will do. I just met you and I love you. Unconditional love. And that is the ground of being. We all come from, every one of us, the ground of our being. It's unconditional love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.